D&D 2nd Edition product Player's Option Skills and Powers introduced some ability scores, which split the traditional ability scores into pairs like Stamina Muscle, Aim Balance, Health, Fitness, Reason Knowledge, Intuition Willpower, and Leadership Appearance. This was well-loved by everyone playing AD&D at the time. To convince you that this is true, I would need to roll under my leadership score because it was an obvious lie, and leadership is the skill you need to use to instill an attitude or belief. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends who have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of RPGs, D&D is like our favorite pet, even if it demands more attention than we're planning to spend. Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over three decades. I started writing for Gnome Stew in 2014 and slowly took on more responsibility, including running the podcast since 2017 and becoming head gnome in 2021. And I'm Jared, and I'm the review gnome at Gnome Stew. I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. After we look at the games we're running today in the campaign journal, we'll be jumping into our Dungeon Masters workshop, where this time we're going to get to the second part of our expert classes playtest document from uh, D&D 1, or 1 D&D, because it's actually supposed to be that direction. And <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> then we'll have some recommendations of uh, D&D related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. So, Ange, what do you got going on in your campaign journal? So I attended UConn in Michigan at the beginning of October, where I ran Tales from the Loop and Vason, both great games from Free League. But with having to prep for those, I kind of fell behind on prep for my, my Zendrick campaign. This left me scrambling at the end of the week leading up to the game as I was trying to prepare for the exploration phase of the campaign. I tend to prep with the next section of the game's story in mind, which usually ends up meaning I've got enough for two to three sessions, depending upon what the players get interested in and what they do. Unfortunately, with their arrival in Stormreach, I'd pretty much exhausted everything I had prepared up to that point. Uh, it ended up just being poor timing with them getting through what I already had and me having to take time away to prep for the convention. So on Friday and Saturday, with us gaming on Saturday night, I scrambled to prepare enough material to feel confident in running them through heading off into the jungles of Zendrick. I had some rough ideas of what I wanted to do, and I'd already grabbed some maps and monster stat blocks, so I just needed to get them ready enough to run in both my notes and in Shard, the VTT we're using. By the time we got to the game, I had prepared two random encounters, two larger dungeon-style scenarios, and a handful of non-combat situations they could run into. There was a rough order that I expect them to get to them, but they're flexible enough that I can slot them in wherever makes sense. Now, some rules purists might grump that I'm not fully fleshing out the map ahead of time and planning where everything is that they could run into. Like, that's not a true hex crawl. <laughs> but let's be honest, ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> this method lets me set the pacing in a way I'm comfortable with and allows me to respond to their actions easier. With all of that in mind, I fully expected them to start their exploration this week. As it turns out, I'm an idiot. <laughs> See, we'd, we'd only partially had an opportunity for them to explore Stormreach during the last session. I had told them they'd have a few days of downtime after the sea journey to recuperate before their expedition leader would give them assignments and send them out into the wilds. Now, in particular, I knew that Sax, the drow cleric of the Silver Flame, had carried a package all the way from Sharn to deliver to the head priest at his temple in Stormreach. 
Now, when he initiated that scene in Sharn, I'd already loosely planned a plotline that involved Father Tecorinth, the leader of the local church, to be missing. For some inexplicable reason, I did not think that my players would immediately jump on that plot hook <laughs> and start tugging at it. Do not ask me what I was thinking, because I have absolutely no idea. I think maybe I was a little too focused on setting up the exploration stuff. Either way, as I was role-playing the other priests in the church that Sax and Perrin were talking to, I realized I'd completely misjudged what I needed to prepare for that session. So Sax and Perrin went back to the lodge, gathered up everyone available, and they began coming up with a strategy on how to search for the missing priest. As a side note, we were down a player because Mannix player was at the opening night of Image Out Film Festival, something he does every year when a pandemic isn't getting in the way. So we basically just said that Manic, the druid, is off in the woods doing <laughs> druid things. While all this is going on, I was desperately trying to set up what I needed for this mystery. Cargill and Renna decided to profile Father Tecorin, saying he's a dwarf, so this means he must go to the taverns. So they went to the taverns closest to the Keep of the Silver Flame and started asking questions. And of course, I'm like, yeah, he's a good-natured dwarf. He likes his ale. Yes, these people know him. I'll answer some questions. Saxon Vandreth went back to the church itself to talk to the other priests there, including the Templar that had been out searching for Father Tagoran. They got some more information about the night he disappeared and got a whiff of something foul-smelling in the room where the father had met with some strangers. Now, Perrin and his NPC buddy cast Locate Object out in the city, searching for the father's holy symbol while wandering around. Now, I had decided where they would need to be for it to trigger, and luckily, in the ten minutes they had for the spell, they wandered into the right area and got a ping, although there was a little bit of miscommunication because I told Perrin that you sense him down, and he thought I meant down on the map, <laughs> meaning south. And I'm like, no, 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 I meant down below your feet. <laughs> as I said, as I was running these separate investigation scenes, I was desperately trying to pull things together. I quickly went through all the maps I had, found a map of some sewers, threw it in there, quickly made an encounter with some thugs and some veterans to serve as my cultists, and a small encounter with some giant centipedes and some centipedes, couple of centipede swarms. So like, just, just, okay, it's... <laughs> It's a sewers encounters. There's got to be something down here. Dump some centipedes on them. Dump some centipedes on them. <laughs> so they, they, the, the fight with the centipedes was pretty much a cakewalk, except for the fact that the swarms are more dangerous than you tend to think based on the CR. And both Vandreth and Sax ended up rolling in the sewer water to get the swarm off of them. Oh. Um, this led to a bit about Perrin and Renna, basically the the wizard and the sorceress, uh, casting prestidigitation with the somatic component of ew, ew, <laughs> ew, ew, as the, just as they were going along. Bookmark that page in the DMG with diseases. <laughs> <laughs> ew, ew. Um, eventually they found where the cultists were holed up, and it ended up being another bottleneck fight, which actually proved to be pretty... Um, I won't say tough for them because they definitely had this fight in hand, but it was not is it wasn't a cakewalk like I think they thought it might be. Mostly because they ended up with um three of the thugs and one of the veterans down a hallway just pegging them with crossbow bolts. And Vandreth took a bit of a beating from that, despite being a paladin. I also decided um that Father Tacorin was in the initiative and on each of his turns 
he would have an opportunity to break free of his bonds. And he actually broke free enough to basically get himself up and come in at the very end of the combat, shouting in fake dwarven Scottish (laughs) about how it was about damn time they all got there. In the end, I got to plant a few future plot seeds with this improv encounter. The last thug standing shouted a guttural chant, a language nobody understood um, before they brought him down as he was trying to kill Father Tukorin. Um, They also found a creepy amulet on one of the veterans hinting at the machinations of the Cult of the Dragon below. They also found a collapsed stairwell that had different stonework and some ancient elving writing. This hook is mainly for Vandrith, since he's a Valinar half-elf looking to prove he's worthy of his ancestors. So I didn't get to any of the material I actually prepped for the session, (laughs) but I'm pretty happy about some of the long-term plot threads that got laid, and I think everyone had a great time. So, Jared, tell me tell me about your woes. <laughs> this last weekend, the, the mean and cruel uh, game hole con stole 50% of our gaming group. So <laughs> we did not, <laughs> once again, have a game. Um, unfortunately, therefore, I have an empty campaign journal. Um, I am uh, looking at having a group just do a strictly one D&D playtest where everybody just makes up characters exactly as the rules are saying instead of like rolling them into you know our campaign a little bit at a time my plan for that is to just have very simple scenarios like you show up here you talk to this person you go through this trap you deal with these monsters and not get overly hung up on making it a real campaign (laughs) this is going to be a challenge for me (laughs) but that's the plan oops you got plot in my test. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Part of that is I want to test some of the the one D&D things in a way that I don't really want to shove into our ongoing game. Because I like our ongoing game and I don't want to, you know, like constantly realign everything. <laughs> yeah, it's been fun playtesting the little bit of things we've tried here and there. But considering this, do- the latest document would affect my character the most. Let's not and say we did. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. On today's Dungeon Master Workshop, we're going to look at the rest of the information from the expert classes playtest, namely the Bard, the Ranger, and the Rogue, and their subclasses. For those of you that may be interested, if the next playtest packet drops before we record our next episode, we're probably going to wait to jump on it, because as much as we love D&D and want to look at the playtest, we also don't want the show to be Ange and Jared talk about one D&D. Yeah, I know. There's other stuff to talk about. This one D&D stuff just like snuck up on us when we planned on making this podcast. I don't think we quite realized like, you know, when the the second document dropped, we were both like, oh, we're not going to be able to fit all of this in one episode, are we? So first, some general questions common to all of these classes. Prepared casters now have a suggested spell list that tells you what your default spells are for every level, which you can change on a long rest. Is this going to be a net positive for prepared casters? I don't think it's bad. It just feels a little weird to me because it almost feels like the default is you're not going to be picking your spells. You're going to use these spells unless you really want to swap one of them out. That's almost the way it reads in the playtest document. And I think that's almost like a way for like, if you're brand new to D&D, don't worry about, you know, you know, picking out your specific spells, just use these. And it's cool, but... I mean, this goes into the whole, like, is it a teaching document or is it, you know, where the rules, you know, just tell you what to do. 
And if it's not a teaching document, do you want to default for everything? And uh, yeah, anyway, I don't want to start off too negative. It's it's a thing that exists. What about you, Ange? I'm actually cool with this. Experienced players can ignore it as they want, uh, but having a suggested list for inexperienced players could be a godsend. There's always so much agonizing over what spells to take when faced with the entirety of the list of spells. Having a suggested list is a good idea for the new or the indecisive. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had a new player start looking at one of the spellcasting classes and then pull off and go back to a fighter or a rogue because they just get overwhelmed by looking at that spell list. You know, now this this of course will all depend on what spells they recommend. Um, but ultimately, ultimately, it's just a recommendation and not a hard or fast rule. So the new crowning achievement for reaching 20th level is the epic boons that have been now been reworked into epic feats. Do you think this is going to be an enticement to play up to 20th level and utilize them? I have a longer answer, but my short answer is no. Uh, <laughs> the epic boons were kind of a neat idea in the DMG, and it was they were sort of there as kind of this... If you want to keep playing past 20th level, you can. And every time you gain, I forget how many experience points, you can just hand somebody one of these epic boons. And it was like, we're not going to deal with infinitely scaling levels like we did in the epic level handbook for a three five or anything like that. But it'll give you something to, you know, something neat to play with if you want to keep playing past 20th level. If you didn't think it was neat enough to hang on for an, an extra adventure or two to get it, when you were 20th level, I don't know that it's going to be neat enough for you to keep going just to get to 20th level to get these. <laughs> I'm, to be completely honest, I'm not sure adding anything like this will make it more likely for a group to actually get to 20th level. In all of my years of gaming, I have only had this happen once, maybe twice, if I count getting to the high teens with Z in the Ladies of Fazdale 4th edition campaign. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, I don't think they hurt, but let's be honest here. How many campaigns actually last long enough for the characters to hit that threshold? It's definitely cool to have something special there. To be fair, I was kind of disappointed with what I got at 20th level when Zalus, my dragonborn Tempest cleric in a Rise of Tiamat campaign, actually hit 20th level. But how many groups actually get there for this to really... Like, I don't, I don't want to say yeah, ignore it, but like... Most players are never going to get to play with these things. I think even like the capstone abilities that they drop back down to 18th, like I would almost rather just see the 20th level capstones be bigger and cooler. Like your 20th level, break the game. I don't care. Yeah, who cares? <laughs> break the game. Be, be big, be bold, be do badass things. Yeah. So according to this document, the plan is to make every subclass progression match for every class in a class group. This means that all the expert classes gained subclass abilities at 3rd, 6th, 10th, and 14th level. What do you think of the standardization and how does it affect these classes? So on one hand, I think it makes a lot of sense to standardize some of the subclass levels. Bards can definitely use that 10th level extra ability because they were short compared to just about every other class. Rogues have like a hell of a gap between their first um, ability they get from a subclass and the next one they get. And honestly, like we were talking about, if you're only if you only end up playing till, say, 10th level or so, and you're getting your second subclass ability at ninth, that's not really that exciting. You, your subclass doesn't feel like it's contributing much if that's how long you're waiting for all of your stuff. So I think that's great. And on the other hand, this is like a big record scratch when it comes to the um, backward compatibility idea, because it's it's going to be tricky. 
for one thing, if if you use any of the old bard subclasses, you're going to be missing an ability. And the other suggestion that they put in this document is if you use old subclasses with this, don't change those standardized levels to the standardized levels. Use the original levels. Then you're not really kind of fixing the problem with the subclasses. You're just, you know, <laughs> might as well just be playing a character from the 2014 rules instead of, you know, instead of these rules. To be fair, while this is a ding on backwards compatibility, I think it's a good idea in the long run to get the classes aligned with their subclasses. To be honest, it surprised me when I realized they hadn't done this to start with in 5th edition. In the grand scheme of things, this is probably a good choice for the designers, but I do wonder how backwards compatible they intend things to be. They're definitely not screwing over creators like happened with the surprise 3.5 drop back in the 2000s. Because, I mean, that literally nearly killed the industry. <laughs> it's fascinating read. Uh, read that part of Designers and Dragons. It's really a fascinating read. Um, but this is definitely going to impact how backwards compatible things could be. Now, I partially wonder if maybe they're, they're like, they're kind of hand-waving that for now. Here's the new stuff. And then in a later document, they'll talk about ways to to make some of those subclasses actually more backwards compatible. I also kind of hope that in this playtest, they, they actually provide some of the additional subclasses instead of just focusing, focusing on the original two or three that were offered in the 2014 player's handbook. I'm really curious to look through, you know, like for example, the rogue and see like, if you, if you move that ninth level ability down to like sixth level, is that ninth level, or is that ninth level ability really that, you know, that overwhelming that it screws with you playing it if you move it down there. Yeah. And I kind of want to look at them, but I haven't really been able to parse every single one of those to see if that's really going to be game breaking if you pull that ability down to six instead of nine. Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see. Now, most of the hit dice saves in armor training doesn't change for these classes. There is some difference in weapon proficiencies, though. You also no longer get choices with your starting gear. You either take the starting package or you take the money with no choose X or Y customization. What are your thoughts on that? First off, it is telling us a lot about this uh, design process because it seems like there's a lot of things where you used to choose between A and B where it is not giving you a choice between A and B. Once you make a choice, then there is a thing to do. Um, we'll see that with some of these subclasses coming up. And I think some of that is to make it easier to jump in and get going. But at the same time, I really did like the idea that like, as a ranger, you could pick either this or a melee weapon, mm -hmm. you know, either their suggested ones or just a melee weapon. And sometimes that let you get that little bit of specialization to it that even if you were using the starting package, it didn't feel like you were necessarily getting what everybody else that was taking that class was getting. And honestly, I don't want to go back to like earlier editions where I'm buying every single thing off of a list. Honestly, that's a worse decision point to me than anything else. <laughs> Well, here's my question. Is there a way to buy the packs with gold or can you only choose a pack by choosing the preset equipment list or you go into the the full list of equipment and piecemeal your pack together? Like if I'm allowed to say, OK, I'm going to buy an explorer's pack and now I'll buy my weapon and armor mm -hmm. with the money I have left. I'm OK with that. I just don't want I don't want to do accounting the role playing game by buying every single little thing that goes into my character's backpack. Honestly, that's um that's one of those things we aren't going to see until we see all of the gear. I do think they strongly kind of hint that 
you're not going to be penalized. Like in the past, it was actually cheaper to take or it's actually you get more stuff if you take the package than if you take the gold, because some of the stuff that's in there is actually more expensive if you buy it piecemeal right. than if you get the whole package. I think they are trying to standardize all the prices on anything so that it it still works out the same way one way or the other. But yeah, I, I really kind of want to see what they're planning on for the equipment list then, because it might still be easy to say, OK, I'm going to take this Explorer's pack and this. The problem is there are certain weapons that when it let you take a melee weapon, like if you wanted a two handed sword, you can take a two handed sword. But that two handed sword is at least according to the current rules, more expensive than, say, a long sword. That is that is true. So I'm not sure how it'll work out. We'll probably need to see actual equipment beforehand. Our first class in the document is the Bard. Jared, tell me what you think of a bard. When I think of bards, I think of people that travel a lot. They tell stories and entertain. They pick up knowledge when they wander around. Um, sometimes they pick up knowledge and they spread that knowledge to other places. And that says to me that they should be able to do things with their performances, but I'm also good with them being spellcasters because that is a thing that has always been true of bards in, in uh, D&D. And also some of our archetypes of bards or wizards have actually been kind of interchangeable because you have some stories where... Merlin is a bard, you know, and it's like, oh, OK, I get it. But being travelers that learn a little bit about everything, that also means that I picture them being at least moderately competent in a fight since they're wandering from place to place and potentially getting into trouble. That's kind of my thought process. What about you, Ange? I think of a loot. <laughs> so back in the day, my character that straddled first edition and second edition was a thief mage who ended up getting a magical loot. So she was kind of a bard in spirit, if not mechanics. And then when second edition came out, lo and behold, there was actually a reasonably attainable bard class because <laughs> bard in first edition was kind of extra. Uh-huh. <laughs> a lot extra. Was the world's first and most difficult to to enter a prestige class. <laughs> just like, what? What? What is he? What even is this? Talk about not getting to 20th level. Who actually ever reasonably made a bard through play? Oh. Uh. Anyway, I was able to convert Beja into a bard in second class, and that was all because of that damn magical loot I got. <laughs> a more refined definition, I see characters who are personable, flexible, flamboyant, the life of the party. I've always loved the jack-of-all-trades aspects of a bard, whether with skills or knowledge. I want to say there was, in third edition, there was an ability that just gave the bard the opportunity to know stuff. Yeah, it's just roll your bardic lore thing and you have a chance of knowing random factoids. I I want the bard who would be with me on at trivia night at the pub. That's <laughs> that's what I want for a bard. I know for sure in second they had that because I I, I love second edition bards because it you know, like you were saying, there was all this mystique built up around them, but you couldn't play them really. <laughs> Bards retain their short sword because it's only a simple weapon now, but they lose the rapier. Is this going to be a big deal? I kind of miss the rapier. I think a lot of uh, bards kind of fall into that swashbuckling side of things. Even if fighting with a sword wasn't their best option, I like the fact that they could do it. I don't think it's game breaking, and I'm sure some of the colleges are going to introduce in other uh, weapon proficiencies. But I, I just it's weird for me to think of a lot of standard bards that I have played or interacted with not having it. The ability to use a rapier. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in agreement here. Bards should get rapiers. It leans into that swashbuckling trope, and it seems silly to take them away now when they've been a central part of the class for so long. 
uh, in the grand scheme of things, is this a big deal? Not really. But if a bard in my game wanted a rapier, I'd probably say screw it and let them have that, whether the mechanics say so or not. And the thing is, I think a lot of it is really they're trying to simplify. Instead of saying you get these weapons that you're proficient with, they're trying to do broad classes. Yeah. So they're just saying simple weapons for bards and no rapier for you. And give the bard the rapier. <laughs> so bardic inspiration gets a few changes. It's now one use per point of your proficiency bonus, and it's a reaction that you roll to boost an ally or heal them. How do you think that affects the bard? First off, I'm going to go with my feelings-based one, and that is <laughs> I like the bonus action better because it feels like you're actually spending that round doing something performance-wise. You're reciting poetry or you're singing a song or something that resonates with someone, and I have a harder time picturing that as a reaction. See, I'm, I'm in disagreement here because, like, I'm picturing the bard standing there with pom-poms going, you can do it! <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it can be, like, I'm, I'm thinking of the way people cheer on sports teams and, like, you can see that the thing is happening and you're like, ah, you got this! I say this as I listen to Sunday Night Football in the background. <laughs> um, you know, so I can totally see it being a reaction. I get what you're saying, because it does sound like it's something that's supposed to happen ahead of time. But I think I'm kind of taking over your part of the comment here. But I kind of think in the long run, <laughs> having this be a reaction means it's going to get used more. Honestly, that, that's why I'm saying this first thing is my feeling based one. That's not really a mechanics based thing that I'm, I'm basing that on. That's just like I said, the way I envision it. It's one of those things that could change over time if that is what becomes official. It just, you know, isn't <laughs> how I'm feeling it. On the other hand, this I do think is more important. Switching it to um, proficiency bonuses per long rest, at least at the beginning, is not good. That sucks. I feel bad <laughs> for bard players because I think there is a big difference in a con in well, basically in an adventuring day between you being able to do it two times and three, which is probably going to be your average at say first level. Right. So. Most bards are going to start play at first level with a plus three in charisma, which gives them three uses of bardic inspiration a day. Mm -hmm. By the time they hit fourth level, most bards are probably going to put that stat bump into charisma, getting them to a plus four. According to it being based on your proficiency bonus, you have two uses per day till fourth level and then three uses per day until ninth level. And you won't even hit that four per day until at ninth level and after. That's just... Dudes, you just change this to make it more attractive to use, <laughs> and then you're telling them they only get to use it two times per day? Yeah. That's that's awful. This is... Anne's just going to go on a rant in the feedback document, because <laughs> that's mean. Don't be mean mm -hmm. to my bards. I, I have been fighting with my teen player who plays a bard in my, ice, my Dragon of Icefire Peak campaign <laughs> to start using their bardic inspiration and I can't get them to use it. And I'm like, this would make that even worse because, but I only have two for the whole mm -hmm. day. Yep. Ugh, don't do that. I mean, I really like the changes to the way it works and we'll get into the healing portion of this later, but don't base it on your proficiency bonus. It's too, it's too limiting. Yeah. And, and like I said, I actually like that proficiency, you know, per proficiency bonus for a lot of the subclass design that they've done where you get some of these neat ideas in these subclasses and you don't necessarily want somebody that has a low ability score and something not to be able to play with those extra uses. And that's great. Using it here does not feel good. No. I mean, maybe this would be too many times per day, but I could see it being 
ability modifier plus proficiency bonus, you know, because, okay, maybe that gives somebody five uses at first level, but it'll give them like nine uses at ninth level. What's wrong with that? Let the bardic inspiration flow. (laughs) Instead of knowing a particular number of spells and being able to access them at will, bards are now prepared spellcasters who work like clerics in the 2014 rules, being able to pick from all of the available bard spells. Um, In this case, arcane spells from divination, enchantment, and illusion or transmutation. Where do you think this put the bards compared to its previous spellcasting? First off, this really makes me wonder what the other spellcasting classes are going to look like. Because they did this with bards, and they did this, we'll see when we look at rangers, they did this with rangers. I am not going to be a fan if they change everybody to prepared casters. Because for one thing, it's going to make me say... Well, why do we have a difference between wizards and sorcerers then? You know, once you start doing stuff like that, then you really are kind of severely redesigning concepts behind some classes. Um, Just the other thing, just from a story standpoint, I do picture bards picking things up here and there. So it made sense to me that, you know, through your travels, eventually you would learn how to cast this. And, you know, in other words, it's not like the bard, when they go to their bardic colleges, which are not literally colleges, that they're sitting there learning every single thing that every, every bard has ever known. They're randomly traveling around and learning stuff from here and there. And hey, I picked up Lightning Bolt. It's really hard to judge how this is going to be because one, narratively, it doesn't make sense to me. Because like you said, how does the bard suddenly have access to all of these spells? And how is this going to affect the wizard and their spellbook? I will punch somebody if you tell my, me my sorcerer has access to all spells ever, because that is not that is not a sorcerer. No. Sorcerer has a very limited set of spells and then the ability to cast them all day long. Yeah. You know, this is what a sorcerer is. The wizard is access to all the spells and limited amount of casting. You know, it's mm-hmm. don't mess with this dynamic. I like this dynamic. And oh, yeah. Definitely. What they're doing with the bard here makes me a little worried. Mm hmm. Why does the bard suddenly have this larger repertoire of spells that they can choose per day? Yeah, and I understand, like, with the cleric, that's literally because you are, the narrative of that story is you're praying to your god and you you have access from your god anything that your god is willing to let, let you have, you know? So what's the narrative for bards? And that yeah. the playtest document didn't give that to us. Right. Um, the other thing that's interesting is... This is where we first see how they really are implementing the the those spell lists, mm-hmm. and it's not that a class gets arcane; it's that, for example, the bard gets arcane but can only use divination, enchantment, illusion, and transmutation. No fireball for you until magical secrets. <laughs> exactly, but it is interesting to me because it feels like streamlining all of it into those three spell lists was simpler, but now we're seeing it get more fiddly when we get to the individual class design, like. Uh, what are you doing here? Yeah. <laughs> Songs of Restoration function like the Song of Rest, but that ability is gone. You don't help your friends get back any extra hit points on a short rest, but you do get a handful of healing spells that don't fall under the arcane umbrella. How do you think this will change the play style of the bard? Again, because I have this image in my head, I like the idea that the bard is sitting there Telling stories, even if it's like old stories of the company's old adventures while you're sitting there having a short rest. Remember that time we blah, blah, blah? Yeah. And, you know, the bard is constantly talking because the bard talks. And, you know, while you're having the short rest, it actually makes you feel better and you get a benefit from it. I like that. Part of why they probably pulled that out is because if you look at the musician feat in the very first 
one uh, D&D playtest. That's kind of what happens with the musician feat now. Mm-hmm. But again, this is what's really funny to me. They're trying to say bards aren't just music, but then they do things like pulling that out and putting it in musician and giving bards proficiencies with uh, with musical instruments. So it's like, yeah, it's not just music. But even if you're an oratory bard that recites poetry, you automatically magically learn how to use lutes. You know, so it's like they try and reverse it and then they shove it back in. Yeah. That's just the song of healing bit of this. The other part of it is when it comes to just their ability to heal. I don't think this is enough healing. No. If you don't have the actual cure spells, which do essentially twice as much as a healing word is going to do, you're not going to be a primary healer. Healing word is a great spell. Oh, yeah. But it's a Band-Aid. Yes. It's a, oh, my God, we're going down. Let me slap 1d4 onto the fighter so we can stay in this fight. Yeah, it is a combat spell to pull your fat out of the fire. It's not a really patch you up seriously spell. And because of how limited they've made Bardic Inspiration, Mm -hmm. that doesn't make up for the loss of the cure spells. Maybe, maybe if they gave birds more uses of Bardic Inspiration, I'd be like, okay, this isn't that bad. But up until fourth level, you only have two uses of Bardic Inspiration. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, you know, like one or two healing words per day and one or two, I'm going to give you 1d8 of healing or 1d6 of healing it. The other tricky part about using um, Bardic Inspiration to heal is that it's got to be a reaction when somebody gets injured. So you can't heal them after they've been injured. If you don't have your reaction to use when they get injured, you can't heal them. Yeah, that's I I didn't I didn't catch that part. I don't like that. Yeah, that makes it a little bit more limited for when you're going to heal somebody, because a lot of times, like the first time somebody gets hit. You don't want to necessarily heal them right away, and that may not be what you want to spend your bardic inspiration on. I don't mind bards not being the preeminent healer, but I want bards to be a solid enough healer that people are not afraid to have a party with maybe a bard and a paladin instead Mm -hmm. of having to have a cleric or having to have a druid. And honestly, even if you have that druid, that druid wants to do other things than heal your sorry butt. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They do get evocation spells. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or at least we're gonna assume they do i mean that would be a really you know left hard left <laughs> turn for druids if they didn't get that yeah and, and the other thing that i think is important here too is revivify ever since they introduced revivify in third edition that's been a pretty important spell because it's that whole they're they're only mostly dead we still got a minute to bring this person back yeah if bards don't get that then you pretty much have to have a cleric if you're going to take advantage of that yeah, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to force parties to have to have a cleric. Mm-hmm. This is nothing against clerics. No, my my tempest cleric is one of my favorite characters of all time. But I don't want to force a party to have to have a cleric. There's, I love clerics, but I also love bards, and I kind of like the idea that I don't always have to play a cleric in order to perform some of the stuff that a cleric can do. If I feel more like playing a bard that time in that campaign. If there was one thing that fourth edition did really well that I appreciate was the instead of saying you need this class, this class mm-hmm. and this class, you need this type, this type, yep. this type and this type. It doesn't like you need your striker. You need your mm-hmm. controller. And that's a good point, because clerics and bards were both leaders. Yep. You know, and leaders boosted other people in the party and healed other people in the party. Yeah. So don't don't force us to go back to the days of, well, somebody's got to play the cleric. Because yeah. you always had very unhappy clerics at that point. <laughs> exactly. I think I think of my friend Jen, 
who enjoyed playing clerics in MMOs, but it was always like, if you're not standing in the circle of healing, it's your own damn fault. <laughs> now, Jack of All Trades moves up to fifth level and no longer affects initiative, and Font of Bardic Inspiration moves up to seventh level. Do you think these rearranged abilities will work well with what the bard does? We've already been talking about this, but Font of Bardic Inspiration takes way too long to kick in. Yeah. Because that is what gives you your bardic inspiration back on a short rest and for one thing short rests aren't even a given but at least short rest made it a little bit more likely you were going to get those things back mm -hmm. and now you can't count on that until your seventh level so i think that is that's rough yeah and even like moving jack of all trades up the fifth, i don't think it's terrible but it feels like it's a very bard thing like that is one of the things someone uses to describe bards is that they're a jack of all trades and they don't get this ability until fifth level why isn't that a second level ability I get that you don't want to have the bards be able to do everything all at once, but it's so integral to the concept of the character. Give it, give it to them at second level. What's funny to me is, I, I mean, at least the way I picture most bards, I'm not saying that they wouldn't get um, expertise, but I almost picture them picking up Jack of All Trades first before they had any expertise. Yeah, actually do that. Yeah. Do that. Give, give them Jack of All Trades instead of expertise at the beginning and then give them expertise later. Yeah. But also give them... Give them font of bardic inspiration earlier, because why you hate bards, Watsy? <laughs> well, and the other thing that I think is is funny here, because I don't think it's a big deal, but it's a little weird to me, is that rephrasing it so that they don't get that bonus on an initiative, it really feels like there were some things that were worded a certain way in the 2014 books. And they're trying to close some of those loopholes. And some of those loopholes, I don't even think were that bad. Like like our sneak attack on every turn? Yeah, we'll get to that we're gonna, one. We're going to get to there. We'll get to that one. But yeah, um, yeah, and it just feels weird because I don't think this was a... Uh, I don't know. I don't know that it's intrinsic to a bard that they would be great at initiative. But it's also, it just feels weird to go out of your way just to make sure, nope, you don't get that bonus yeah. on initiative either. <laughs> it's like, who is it? who hurt you with that rule? <laughs> yeah. Magical Secrets now lets you pick a spell list and prepare two of your spells from that spell list. You get to pick another spell list at 15th level, but you still only have two slots to play with. What does this do for the Bard's abilities? It makes them more flexible, but it also makes them more flexible later in the game. <laughs> so, you know, like we were saying, like some games barely get to 11th level. But here's the thing that I think is interesting about this. We were talking about how it was strange to conceptualize the bard just knows all bard spells. This is now saying that the bard not only just knows all bard spells, but knows all bard spells and all divine spells. And you can, sure, you can only fill two slots, but you have access to every divine spell now. And again, that really goes against, like, when this was just being able to pick up spells from other people's spell lists, that made sense for a bard, because it was sort of like when you get higher level, you start going, hey, this isn't my type of magic, but I've been around long enough that I can figure out how to throw a fireball, you know, and that was kind of that neat dabbler feel that, you know, that bards had. Whereas this is this is it It feels from a rule standpoint, you're making them more flexible, but I don't know what it does for the story of it. Yeah. And I also think it makes things more complicated because you're already saying, OK, we're not going to give you a list of bard spells. We're going to say you can do the the arcane list, but you have to pay attention to what school it is. But not only do you have to pay attention to what school it is. Now you have to pay attention to what school it is. Keep track that you have two slots that you can use this for and figure out which one of these other lists you're going to pull those other two things from. 
I do find it funny that you don't like the preset recommended spell list, but then you complain about the freedom that this offers the bards. I mean, I totally get what you're saying, but I do find it funny. Yeah, I know. That's I, I know. I, I I do not profess to be 100% consistent in all of my opinions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. Um, I think my main point with this is that it's, it's way too late. Mm-hmm. 11th level is so far into the game that like, why why can't they have this at 7th level? You know, and again, I am not doing any designing here, looking at what would be replacing what or anything mm-hmm. like that. It just feels like a lot of these abilities that they're putting in here are way late for when the class should be getting them. Yeah, and like if you're playing like one of the standard adventures that they've published, you're getting these maybe by the very end of that adventure. So 18th level, you get what used to be the capstone for the class. In this case... When you roll initiative, you regain two expended uses of Bardic Inspiration. Does this feel like a satisfying capstone ability? It's fine and no. <laughs> <laughs> it's very utilitarian, but if you're going to tell me, like, this is when you get the pinnacle of Bardic power, where you you can tell the these stories that resonate deeply within the world, and how that manifests, that you can tell the stories that, that are universal <laughs> to the entire world, is that you get slightly more Bardic Inspiration. Just, no, kind of anticlimactic. Yeah, my thought was people actually get to play characters to 18th level. <laughs> More seriously, you know, with what you said, it's fine, but it doesn't feel special. No. And I kind of have that issue with a lot of these capstone abilities. They're they're fine, but they're not they're not the epic level things that I think these characters should be getting at that level. So Bard loses counter charm as an ability. How do you feel about that change? Okay, this is one of those things that Counter Charm, as it's written in 5e, is not great because you're giving up your action to maybe, you know, grant people the ability to shake off something or have advantage against. At the same time, I'm so used to that existing in the class since at least second edition. I would almost rather see it fixed than just abandoned. Yeah. To me, there is something about a bard being able to continually chant or say something that counteracts other magical things that you might be hearing that says something about the bard and how special their performance is. Why can't they just make it counterspell? Like, have it be something the bard gets as a reaction that they can do X times per day. I think we're going to see a whole can of worms once we actually see counterspell addressed too, because we have a whole other thing going on yeah. with, like, like NPC stat blocks don't use spells anymore. They just use the magic action, and yeah, it's it's a thing. True. <laughs> So the Bardic College we see in this document is the College of Lore. Its initial ability is cutting words, as it was before, but while it can still be used to subtract the die from an opponent's d20 test, it no longer buffers against damage. How will this work out? Um, I don't hate it. I have an easier time picturing you saying something to distract someone and throw them off their game as a reaction than I do <laughs> inspiring somebody. Go team, go! Yeah, and and I'm not even going to try and throw out some of the things that one would say to distract someone that they don't like. But I know it doesn't take that long to uh, get underneath someone's skin sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, I can remember some of the sports games I went to with my uncles when I was a small child. (sighs) (laughs) To be fair, I don't have too many thoughts on this one. I don't think I ever used it or saw it get used against damage. It was always against an opponent's D20 test. I think I've used it more. I've seen it used more on damage but i think it's because a lot of bard players weren't paying attention until somebody was saying you know like 
All right. Well, now that they've hit you, they're like, oh, crap. I should at least uh, <laughs> should at least get rid of some of the damage they're doing. You know, I, now thinking about it, I'm like, I'm not sure I actually played with a <laughs> College of Lore bard anyway. I made the mistake of allowing two bards into <laughs> my Dragon Heist campaign, and I don't remember what their colleges were. I know his was the the Marshall one because he was an orc who played drums with his short swords. <laughs> uh, College of Valor. Regina George is a tiefling. <laughs> so I don't remember what her college was. My, my cleric bard of Zurich was definitely College of Whispers because, you know, <laughs> it yeah. made sense. Yeah. The College of Lore bard used to get more access to non-bard spells at 6th level, but they now get cunning inspiration, meaning you can roll your bardic inspiration die twice and take the best results. Any thoughts on this change? A lot of more recent subclasses have done a really, really good job of all of their abilities playing to the story of that subclass. The problem with that is, is the College of Lore always kind of felt like I am a bard that is slightly more bard than other bards. The bardiest bard. Yeah. So it's not so much a story as it's just like, if you want to double down on some of your bard abilities, take this one. I actually think this version of the class, even your subclass, even gets further away from that idea of lore. Because back in the 2014 rules at six at six level, you were picking up new spells. So that kind of says lore. You're learning more stuff than a regular bard would. This is just saying, yeah, use your inspiration better. To, to me, to me, the, the College of Lore bard should be the nerd bard. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like I said earlier, this is the guy you want at your side during pub trivia. Because mm -hmm. they just know so much. And I don't feel like any of these... Like, I don't have a problem with any of these these subclass abilities in and of themselves. They just don't feel like the College of Lore Bard. No, I definitely, I, I agree. This subclass has never had a super strong story, but I think it's weaker now than it was mm -hmm. previously. <laughs> so Bards didn't have a 10th level subclass feature before, but now they gain the ability to do psychic damage equal to their cutting words roll, plus their charisma when they use that feature. Is this a good ability to slot into this position? It's fine. Um, it also <laughs> doesn't fine. doesn't scream lore to me. Uh, I do yeah. psychic damage because I know lots of stuff. Yeah, like like I said, I don't have a problem with this. Um, you know, it 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 falls in line with vicious mockery as a cantrip that bards use, but at the same time, it doesn't. What does this have to do with the College of Lore? Yeah, when I think of doing like that that psychic damage kicker, I think of things like you know, like the College of Secrets. You know, that sort of mm -hmm. more sinister feeling. But it's fine. It's an ability at 10th level that didn't exist before. So, hey, have at it. It's fun. Yeah. I kind of love Vicious Mockery when it takes an opponent oh, yeah. out. It's I like, love Vicious Mockery. <laughs> it's like, I insult you. Oh, he dropped dead. Um, I'm going to walk away slowly now. Peerless skill works the same way, except now when you use your Bardic Inspiration on yourself and you still fail, you don't lose a die. Is this a net positive? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, I think we're going to see a lot more of this in some of the game design where... If you spend a resource and that resource doesn't do you any good, you're not going to actually spend it. I think we've actually seen that in a few of the other things in this playtest document. So I, I think it's fine. I don't think you want to do it with every single resource that you spend, but I do think it's good to add that into a few more places, especially with Bardic Inspiration, which they don't give out enough of. Have we said that enough? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's our, our biggest theme about bards. And I'm really tired of talking about yep. bards. Can we talk about rangers now? Yes, we can talk about rangers because rangers are like my favorite class ever. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on what a ranger should be? 
All right. So I love Rangers and like Bards, I have an image of them in my head. And obviously the first image that I get is Aragorn. He's one of my favorite characters ever. I like the idea that the Ranger is someone that can protect somebody in nature. That's kind of what they do. They guide people through nature and they protect them. They find the safe path. They defend people. Um, They're mobile fighters and skirmishers and they can be stealthy. That's the image that I have in my head. I don't mind Rangers having spells. I know some people are very against Rangers having spells and that that's never really bothered me. But I also don't picture Rangers being those warrior skirmishers being spellcasters first. Like those spells help them do other things, but they are primarily good at doing the skirmishy stuff. And that's kind of where I picture Rangers. My very first character getting back into RPGs in the early 2000s was an elf ranger totally inspired by Legolas. (laughs) Rangers are, to me, someone who feel more at home in the woods. They seek to protect the world around them. And they're an absolute badass with whatever weapon they decide, whether it's the two weapons, the big two-handed sword that that Aragorn used occasionally, (laughs) or the bow with Legolas. Mm -hmm. Um... You know, what, whatever whatever they choose with that weapon, they're a badass. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also agree. I never I didn't hate the spells. They just didn't interest me. There was nothing there was nothing about the spell lists for rangers that made me go, oh, yes, great. I get spells this level. Yeah, what, whatever. I don't care. Just let me shoot something with my bow five times in a row again. Yeah, I was going to say in third edition, I would use a lot of those spells, those spell slots as okay, I'm going to do a cure right now so that we don't drain all of the cleric's resources. (laughs) (laughs) Right up front, they now get expertise in two skills, uh, but any of the benefits from favored terrain have gone away, as have the kickers to tracking and making checks against favored enemies. Uh, They also get two more expertise skills at ninth level. Is this a net gain for rangers? Um, This is, first off, this is kind of what I was talking about, about the proliferation of expertise, because... It's not just that rangers get expertise. They gain it again at ninth level. So by ninth level, you have rangers that have a plus eight plus their ability bonus. And if you have like a ranger and a bard in the party, that's eight skills that people have a plus eight plus their ability bonus to. (laughs) And that's going to definitely skew who gets to make the skill checks in the party. I wonder if they went a little hard on giving expertise twice in the level progression, because like... Yeah, give it to give it to them at first level with yeah. two of their, their that's that's fine. Maybe leave the rogues to be the ones to get it again yeah. later. Yeah, actually, I mean, thematically speaking, I don't want to go completely off here, but yeah, I could see rogues getting it focused at two different times so they have at least four skills. I can see bards being the you get jack of all trades and then expertise, and rangers getting expertise and then maybe something else as a skill right. kicker later on, but not necessarily expertise at two different levels like they're kind of designing into all of these now but the other thing i kind of miss and i don't know how to put it back in is i liked the idea that the ranger could do these tricks like well because it's my favorite terrain not only can i track these things but i can tell you there were exactly 12 of these ogres because you know i can look at the stuff i don't know how useful it was but it made it feel like they had something nobody else had anybody could track with survival but they can look at these tracks and tell you, you know, it's like Aragorn putting his ear to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> my feelings about favored terrain are kind of even more meh than my feelings on favored enemy because it was so situational. There were times where I was like, you know, I'd, I'd want to make a ranger and I'd be GM. 
this favored terrain makes sense for my background. Will I ever actually see it in play? You know, because there's not, there's, it's super frustrating to choose an ability and then never actually get to use it in play. And that was kind of my experience with favored terrain and favored enemies. It's like, please, GM, please tell me if I choose favored enemy giants will actually fight giants at some <laughs> point, please. What I like, because we've seen this in some of the other things that they've designed in recent years, I actually would be okay with them getting certain like special abilities for favorite terrain, but instead of picking a favorite terrain and that's all you get until you get the class feature again, let them swap it out like on a short rest. Oh, yeah. Like have them spend some time looking around and understanding I am in nature. This isn't where I usually hang out, but hey, I figured this out. If you spent time short rest or between a short rest or to a long rest, you now have advantages in working in that terrain because you have been here for long enough. And see, that's that's the kind of stuff I wish was in this class because it feels like they're leaning really hard on rangers are in tune with nature because they get the primal spell list. And that's about that's the main thing that relates back to nature in all of this. Yeah. Instead of them having discrete things with the class. So rangers still aren't a full casting progression class, but they now get spells at first level, including cantrips. Does this rearrangement of spell casting change the feel of the ranger to you? Um, I still like the ranger to be good at doing something and then having them spells make them better at that something rather than primarily using their spells. What is interesting to me is once you give them like Thorn Whip, which is a cantrip that they can use to attack that has a decent damage output, at least until they start getting, you know, multiple attacks with their attack action. Um, you can almost play that like the um, fourth edition warden. Mm -hmm. And I kind of like that. I, I, I'm actually not against that idea. I, I think you would need a good subclass to really make it feel like the warden, especially, like I said, once you get to, you know, fifth level and your, you know, your thorn whip isn't necessarily keeping up with your damage that you'd get from <laughs> hitting people with a sword more than once. But yeah, I think it's kind of an interesting way to model that. I don't hate it, but I don't love it. Uh, it's always been more important to me that the ranger be basically a badass in a fight, oh, yeah. either with their bow or with their melee weapons. Mm -hmm. The spells always felt more tacked on more utilitarian uh, i think i think in playing like neverwinter nights or something it was always oh i'm gonna cast bark skin on myself and then go into the fight and kill everything yeah you know it was never the, the fights were never integral to what the character was doing they were just a slight boost at something and that was a big third edition thing anyway if you knew you were heading into a fight you cast as many buffs as you can because so many of them stacked <laughs> Bull's strength, cat's grace, <laughs> bark skin, mage uh. armor. It's like, <laughs> Part of why rangers get spells earlier is that favored enemy is now the ability to have hunter's mark as an always prepared spell, which can be cast without concentration. Is this a good way to merge favored enemy with the ranger's signature spell? This is extrapolating a little bit, but we have not seen Eldritch Blast on the arcane spell list. Which makes me wonder, when we see the Warlock, if they're just going to fold Eldritch Blast into a thing that they do mm -hmm. and not a separate cantrip. And if that's true, I almost think it would make more sense to just give Rangers Hunter's Mark as a thing that they do instead of making it a spell. Yeah. Because what this does is kind of neat, but it also turns this into, like, now your Druid can cast Hunter's Mark, but the Ranger is better at casting it. Whereas before, nobody was casting Hunter's Mark other than Rangers. <laughs> And it feels weird to me to make that switch to where, yeah, other people could cast Hunter's Mark, but Rangers are better at it. I think it's better to do it this way than some of the other ways they've tried to do Favorite Enemy. I want to make that part of this clear. 
I just don't know that it doesn't make more sense to just make Hunter's Mark a ranger ability rather than a spell. I like taking it away from it being a spell, having to use your spell slots for it. Mm-hmm. I like using Hunter Mar- Hunter's Mark instead of fa- favorite em- enemy. Like I said, favorite enemy was always one of those super frustrating abilities that you'd have to hope that your GM would give you some clues about what you're going to face mm-hmm. in the campaign so you could actually have the, the, the ability be useful. Otherwise, oh, look, I've chose goblinoids and we've never, ever yeah. actually faced a goblinoid. And my God, do I actually hate undead. Hunter's Mark as the, the replacement for it works. Just detach it from being a spell. Yeah. And and the other thing that I, I actually like is I don't I, I don't like the narrative of rangers hate this one thing so much they're good at murdering them instead of just saying rangers are good hunters. And having Hunter's Mark be this thing where you're basically just observing and really focused on hunting down this one thing, not because you hate it, but because you're focused on it. I like that story a lot better for the ranger. Yeah, that that makes a lot more sense. It means you don't have to have your ranger doesn't have to come prepackaged with some tragic backstory (laughs) about how your family were killed by giants or killed by gnolls or killed by outsiders or Whatever it was you decide you want your favorite enemy to be. Because it also didn't make sense. Well, oh, I get to choose some more favorite enemies. Okay, who else has done me wrong? Yeah. <sighs> favorite enemies are aber- uh, aberrations because my family was eaten by mimics. It's- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, like the, I like the change to it just being, I am a good hunter. I am going to focus on this thing to hunt it. Right. Just detach it from the spell list part yeah. of things. Yep. Only members of the warrior group can take fighting style feats, but the ranger is an exception to this. They get to pick from archery, defense, or two-weapon fighting, um, and they can spend their own feats to pick up other fighting style feats. What does this do for the ranger? Um, so I don't know if we need to keep limiting the fighting styles for the rangers, because we, there is like this, this really focused idea that you're either the archery ranger or the two-weapon fighting ranger. Yeah. and You're then, either Legolas or Dritzt. Yeah. Yeah, and my... And my my whole thing with that is, but Aragorn was the guy with the longsword that sometimes swung it two-handed. Yeah. Or or even to use a more modern thing, which I've had some people argue with me, he's not a ranger. But honestly, I have a hard time not seeing Geralt from The Witcher as mm-hmm. a ranger type. And again, this is not a guy that fights with two weapons or a bow. This is a guy that pulls out a sword and sometimes swings it two-handed. At the very least, I wish they would at least widen it up to dueling and fighting style protection. Because then at least you have the guy that has a sword in one hand, or you have the guy that protects someone else, which is a core function of the ranger, is protecting people out in the out in the wilderness. Yeah. But yes, Aragorn definitely swung uh, Anduril around with two hands a lot. <laughs> I don't mind the rangers being put in the expert bucket instead of the warrior bucket. I think it makes a lot more sense for them being a skill monkey mm-hmm. um so to speak but i don't think they should be limiting their access to the fighting style list because as much as they are that skill-based character they are also supposed to be a fierce warrior mm-hmm. um, so they should have access to that for the essence of their class oh yeah rangers got a bit of an overhaul with optional abilities in tasha's cauldron of everything so it's hard to compare it to only the 2014 ranger Landstride from 2014 and Roving from Tasha's are replaced with a new version of Roving that gives the ranger climbing and speed um, and plus 10 feet of movement. This is only different from Tasha's in that you get five feet more. How does this change feel? So, you know, when I went off on my my rant or commentary, however you you know like to look at it, whether you're being uh, nice to me or not, (laughs) 
I don't like everybody getting special movement rates, but it bothers me more when you take a feat called athlete and you get a special movement rate than when the ranger gets it. Because I can picture the ranger being kind of the supernatural class that's really close to nature, learning how to climb like animals climb to where it's not necessarily a skill check for them. So it doesn't bother me that much that they get a climb speed. Um, I do kind of wish they had to pick what special movement rate they got, if only because you're automatically giving a ranger a swim speed and your ranger may have never been around water. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, that one kind of is a little weird to me. The only other thing that I kind of miss from some of their old abilities is I did like them having like a resistance to things like entangle or being slowed down by plants because that kind of said to me that they were a wilderness skirmisher. You know, it's not addressed by just giving them a climb speed or a swim speed. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose you could say that having the extra movement mitigates it somewhat, but yeah, it would still be nice if that was actually like, no, like, let, hey, let's actually give the ranger some nature flavor. Mm -hmm. Um, It's nature. I got it on me. They should yeah. be in nature. Let them have some benefits to actually being in the wilderness. So Tireless was a new ability from Tasha's, uh, allowed the ranger to grant themselves temporary hit points a number of times equal to their proficiency bonus as well as shave off an extra layer of exhaustion on a short rest. This ability is similar, but you only get the temporary hit points when you take a short rest. Is this a good look for the ranger? I like it. Like I said, I mean, other than my general, we have a lot of things giving people temporary hit points. I think it works fine. It's, you know, the ranger is, is tough, and you give them a chance to take a breather, and they're going to bounce back and be ready to go again. Um, the only thing that I kind of wish, and I know there'd be some people that would hate this is I wish there was some way to tie this to being at home in nature because I don't picture a ranger just resiliently bouncing back because they hung out in an inn and slept in a bed. This almost seems like <laughs> this is something they would get only when they're out camping. You know what I mean? I, I'm cool with it. I feel it's a little late in the game to be impactful yeah. on a ranger's longevity in combat. Um, but I do like that it kind of. You know, yes, again, they need to tie more of this to a ranger and their relationship with nature. But I like the idea that it, it kind of sets up the ranger as someone who is used to basically being on the go and having to like take advantage of those moments where they get the opportunity to rest, which means they bounce back mm -hmm. after a short rest better than other characters do, because this, yeah. is, this is what they do. Nature's Veil kind of replaces hide in plain sight and vanish which came at 10th and 14th level, respectively. Now, at 13th level, you can use a bonus action to become invisible until the end of your next turn. What does this say about the ranger's sneakiness? Um, 13th level feels like a long time to wait if you want rangers to be seen as especially stealthy. Yeah. And I know some of what, you know, if you want to play up that your ranger is very sneaky, obviously, you probably used one of your expertise, you know, picks for stealth. But it still feels like if you want this to feel like, hey, they just naturally disappear out in the wilderness and you don't know where they're coming from. 13th level seems like a long way to wait for that. I feel like a lot. And we've already said this and we keep harping on it. A lot of these special abilities are way too up in the level chain. I'm not sure what I would do to restructure things. So this is just me shouting into the void at the designers. But a lot of these things are really cool. Why you got to make us wait for them? And the funny thing is, is this is basically this is saying when you take a bonus action, you can do this. So that's actually a lot of uses of this ability whenever you're willing to blow your your bonus action. But on the flip side, this is the ability that Furbolgs get 
for a short rest. Feral Senses moves down to 15th level and just grants you blind sight up to 30 feet instead of being able to pinpoint invisible creatures and remove sight-based disadvantage to attacks. Is this an improvement? Yes. In some cases, I think these rules have over-packaged things to where it says you get this instead of explaining it. This is one of those cases where when you read what the ranger actually got, it was almost blindsight anyway. So there really wasn't a point in not pointing to the blindsight rules and saying that's what you got. Yeah, I agree. Just just say what it is. Like it, it's if it's if it, we'll, we'll actually get to this shortly. But like if you have a thing that is called a thing, <laughs> it should be that. Use thing. that name. It should be that thing. <laughs> the capstone foe slayer has moved to 18th level and changes your hunter's mark die to a d10. Instead of adding your wisdom bonus against your favorite enemy, how do you think this will shake out? It is not show stopping, but I think it is definitely more reliable than just, you know, plinking your wisdom bonus once per turn onto something that was already your favorite enemy, which is really too fiddly. And honestly, I think um, anytime you give somebody a bigger die to roll, it feels good. Yeah, I I don't think any of the high level things we're seeing at 18th (laughs) level are truly show stopping, which is disappointing. It's like. Like, you've got all these cool things that you're making everyone wait for, and then we finally get to 18th level, and this is all you're giving me? Um, I will say this one is better than what I think the bards got at 18th level. Yes, that, that was one of the things I was going to say, too. <laughs> it's better, just not that amazing. Yeah, it's it's not <laughs> it's not what it should be. The Hunter subclass for Ranger is what we get in this playtest. I actually wish they had given us Beastmaster instead, because yeah. it would have been interesting to see what they do with that. Mm-hmm. The multiple choices you got at different levels all get streamlined as a single ability. Uh, Hunter's Prey, the first of these, is effectively Colossus Slayer from the old version of the subclass. Will you miss the other options? I miss having options, but Colossus Slayer was pretty much the best option you could pick when you picked (laughs) up Hunter. You get extra damage on something as long as it's already been injured. That makes perfect sense to me for a Hunter. I mean, that works. You know, I suppose there's a certain degree of... You know, if they offered choices and people always chose the same thing, why offer choices? Yeah. Um, But to be completely honest and open with everyone here, (laughs) I've never played a ranger in 5e. I wasn't happy with the initial options presented in the player's handbook when it came out in 2014. So I never really explored it much after that. This ability seems fine to me, but I don't really have much personal experience to compare it to. I have played Beastmasters, um, Hunters. And the Monster Hunter from Tasha's. I really like the Monster Hunter of all of these, but Hunter Hunter was not a bad subclass either. So my main experience is one of my friends is playing a Beastmaster Ranger in in one of our campaigns, and I've been helping him get his character set up. And we ended up using options from Tasha's instead of what was in the player's handbook because when he told me he wanted to play a Ranger, I'm like. You look at the subclasses in the other books because Blair's Handbook from 2014 isn't that great. Yeah. Instead of defensive tactics where you could pick from a few protective measures, you now get Hunter's Lore, which grants you knowledge of immunities, resistances, and vulnerabilities of anything you have Hunter's marked. Is this a good trade-off? Um, I miss having the choices, but they were all kind of fiddly, like in this circumstance, you get a bonus to this or whatever. And honestly, knowing all the weaknesses and everything... It, and immunities of something you have marked also feels like something a hunter would have. So I actually think this is one of those cases. They actually made this more on theme for it being a hunter. And I kind of like it. 
I do know that one of the complaints I've heard about 5e is that there aren't enough places to make choices that make your character unique from any other character in that class subclass. I've never really had a problem with it because I haven't come even remotely close to playing all of the (laughs) options available in subclasses. So as written, I'm okay with it, but I can understand if somebody would be upset that, well, I don't get to make a choice here anymore. Multi-attack. This is where we're going to talk about if you call something something, it should be something. Yeah. Multi-attack was an ability in the 2014 Hunter subclass that either let you hit everyone within five feet or shoot everyone in a 10-foot radius of a location you chose. It now lets you always have Conjure Barrage prepared and gives you the ability to downcast it. How does this compare? So first off, let's get this out of the way. Multi-attack is a rule in the game. It's a name for what monsters get when they can attack with multiple attacks in their stat block. That is not what this does. And you are confusing things when you use the name of something that exists in rules for something in the rules that doesn't do that thing in the rules. It's the exact opposite of what they're doing in a lot of places where they're standardizing what something is called. In this case, they're using a bad name for something (laughs) that should not be called multi-attack. I liked the choice between either having a melee option or a ranged option, but both of them were not good in the previous hunter thing because most of the time you're not going to be surrounded by that many foes that it's going to be super awesome that you can hit every one of them unless your ranger really intentionally got in a position where you were completely surrounded by enemies. And it was really hard to line up all of the people that you wanted to shoot in a 10-foot radius from that one spot that you picked. Yeah, 10-foot radius is not big. I have two problems with this. One, Conjure Barrage is not awesome. (laughs) It is not an awesome spell. Two, it goes back to other things we were saying about the ranger. I want you to be good with a bow. I don't want you to be good at casting a spell that makes you good with a bow. And also... Again, Conjure Barrage now is no longer just a ranger spell. So it's basically just saying the spell that anybody that gets access to Primal can do, you just always have prepared. That's not that exciting. Yeah, and I, I don't I don't like these things that are requiring you use your spell slots. Yeah. If you are giving my class a special ability, it should have its own separate pool of uses. Mm-hmm. I don't even want my ranger to have spell slots. Yeah. <laughs> Just give me Hunter's Mark X number of days and give me something better than, than Conjure Barrage, because I agree with you. This should be this should be something based on the character's ability with their weapons. Yeah. Not not that they have some access to magical um, a spell. Don't don't do this. This is dumb. And also this is where they're trying out this idea that you can get Conjure Barrage, which is a third level spell, and they'll let you downcast it so you can use your second and first level slots for it. And again, that just, it feels too fiddly. Like it doesn't feel like you're getting that much with it. And you're adding this weird thing where I can almost bet you, if you let this be an ability, people will start thinking you can downcast other spells and it's just going to confuse people. You cannot cast fireball as a first level spell slot. That does not work. No, because honestly, (laughs) if you're fighting a bunch of kobolds, a first level fireball is going to be a lot more useful (laughs) than it should be. Oh my God. Yes. I would rather this be something kind of like the fighter's wind, the second wind, except you only get to use it against like your marked prey. You know, like once in a while you can say, nope, I'm going to take another round of attacks on that thing that I already have marked. You know, that feels more like what they're sort of trying to go for here. Right. And then it also applies if you're a melee ranger versus if you're a bow ranger. Superior Hunter's Defense from 2014 gave you three choices, evasion, uncanny dodge, or the ability to redirect a missed attack to another creature. The current version of Hunter changes this to one ability, which lets you both have the damage and redirect the other half. How does this look for the Hunter? 
this is another place where they get rid of options, but I actually do like the option that they gave you because basically they merged two of the options that you could pick and it's kind of cool. <laughs> it's a neat trick. I like this one. It's badass. I want it. So can we talk about rogues now? Yes. Let us get to rogues before you explode. What is rogue to you, Jared? Okay, so rogues are like the epitome of adventurers. And by that, I mean, they do lots of things that let them explore and to get into trouble. <laughs> and what's funny is, is over the years, my idea of rogues has kind of evolved. I don't necessarily picture rogues as criminal types, per se. I picture people like Indiana Jones or Rick O'Connor from the uh, Mummy movies or Lara Croft as being rogue. Rogue is life. <laughs> Seriously, dude, rogues are my thing. You put a fantasy RPG video game in front of me and I'm going to play a rogue. I came very close to getting vanity plates for my <laughs> Nissan Rogue to name it after Jazzy, my EverQuest Rogue. <laughs> Rogues to me are the scoundrels with a heart of gold, the epitome of chaotic good, the Robin Hood with sticky fingers. Yeah, I know that's not everyone's interpretation of them, but I adore getting to play the sneaky, agile, deadly character who's trying to make the world a little bit better in their own warped little way. I wouldn't have got that from the character you're playing in my campaign. <laughs> Yeah, Kazina just, you know, you just add in the social awkwardness of not knowing how to people to all of that. Rogues get an interesting group of weapon proficiency in that they get martial weapons with finesse now, although they lose the longsword. How does this affect our image of rogues? It was always weird that rogues got proficiency with a longsword, but it is very specifically not a weapon that they can sneak attack with. <laughs> I don't think it ruins anything, although rogues have been able to use longswords for a long time. I, I don't think it's terrible. I do think there is still a little bit of weirdness in that rogues do not have a blunt weapon that they can sneak attack with. I don't think I've ever played a rogue with a longsword, even if they were allowed short swords, rapiers, daggers all the way. Um, I do agree. Give me something blunt. Mm -hmm. You know, like 5e is not as obnoxious as third edition was when it came to piercing weapons and the undead. Yeah. Or at least skeletons. But at the same time, occasionally you want you just want to bonk somebody on the back of the head. It's like a classic rogue thing to come up behind someone and just whack them, you know, yeah. and you can't really do that. You just always have to picture it as like the pommel of your weapon or something. Now. I think another thing about longswords is that as far as I'm aware, they did not qualify as a finesse weapon, which meant you had to use your strength with them. And while, yes, I can see some people going with a strength build for their rogue, all my points were in my decks. You know, so I was focused on the finesse weapons anyway, so I could use my decks for attacks and damage instead of strength. So let's get into probably the most controversial part of the new rogue, sneak attack. It appears that the playtest doesn't want rogues to get sneak attack damage once just any turn, but only once on their turn. Is this going to be detrimental to rogues? I think it's going to depend on what your group was used to doing, but I definitely think it could be a problem for some rogues. Like, for example, if you have people that had like a battle master in your group and they were sneaking in those off turn attacks, you know, that's part of your combat strategy was the battle master saying, hit him now. That's like the com <laughs> that is the complete strategy in my Undermountain game where I'm playing the battle master mm -hmm. and my buddy Doug is playing our swashbuckling rogue. Yeah. And it's like, OK, stab him, wonder. That's just like a big old wet blanket to that uh, <laughs> that play style there. It was also kind of a nice thing where your bad guys didn't want to try and risk a attack of opportunity from a rogue because that could potentially go real bad for them. And now it's just, oh, the rogue will hit me. Maybe it'll be an extra three or four points of damage. It's like, I love getting those bonus sneak attacks. 
I, I, you know, whether it's from the command of the Battlemaster or on an attack of opportunity, but I also don't necessarily hold a grudge with them trying to refine that back down a bit because I still feel like it's a loophole. And like, I know Jeremy Crawford came out many years ago and said, no, no, <laughs> this is what this means. Rules is written. Yes, you can do sneak attack on other people's turns. Oh, OK. But it still felt like a loophole. So I don't necessarily begrudge them trying to close it. But at the same time, I like my stabby stab damage. Thieves Can't not only grants that language, but now grants an additional language as well. How are we feeling about more language skills for the rogue? Um, the interesting thing was, as I was thinking about what I was thinking about with, with uh, rogues now and how that kind of says adventurer to me, and Thief really is kind of a subtype of rogue, I'm actually starting to wonder if Thieves Can't really needs to be something that rogues automatically get. Because we already saw, like, if you take the criminal background, that might be what you want to take for your language in your criminal mm -hmm. background, as opposed to just getting it automatically as a thief. And the reason I think of that, too, is this is giving you Thieves Can't and then another language. I don't think there's enough languages in D&D &D <laughs> that, like, if you have every background giving you a language and then you have this giving you a language and also giving you another language for the rogue, like, at some point are these all going to be useful? And also let me also flip this back to the first class we were talking about. Rogues have the potential to know more languages than bards, which sounds really weird to me. That does sound really weird. I, I think, I think one of my issues with it, it's more of an issue with thieves can't in general, because thieves can't narratively speaking should be localized to each city. Yeah. Each city should have its own version of thieves can't, which means your rogue shouldn't be able to travel across Faerun and go from some far southern city that I can't think of naming um, or Iluskan and speak the same Thieves' Cant. That shouldn't work. Yeah, Waterdeep Thieves' Cant should not be the same as Calumport Thieves' Thieves' Cant. But that's not the way the game works. You're a rogue. You've got it. You can talk to other rogues. Okay, so I don't mind them tacking on an additional language that'll actually make it a little more useful in the long run. But at the same time, I also agree Wait, why does the rogue speak more languages than the bard? Why does the rogue speak more languages than the wizard? Yeah, it's it's kind of weird. Um, and I'm not really sure why they did it other than just to add something else to the thieves can't. I don't know. I don't I don't understand. The other thing is, this is a broader thing. I think they really need to make more languages for more settings. So that it's more interesting to have more languages and more settings. Um, even with like the Forgotten Realms, they actually do add a bunch of languages in Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide, but those never get referenced because they're not in the, the core book. Whereas if you look like Eberron's got a ton of extra lang languages, the um, I'm trying to think of the official critical role one that they did. Eldori? The Exandria. The Exandria. Yeah. Um, the one that Watsi put out. That one has a bunch of extra languages in it. But as far as official, you know, languages in D&D, &D, you're thinking like, oh, you have like primordial or draconic or common. You don't have like all of these different, you know, human nations that have all of their languages drilled down in there. And to a certain degree, I can I can see like it could get frustrating having to play with the languages. Oh, well, you can't understand what's being said. It, mm -hmm. Like I can understand reasons to want to hand wave some of the language stuff, but I, I agree with you. Like, yeah, and it, it's fun. It, I don't think you should use it so that people can't communicate with each other, but it does give you as a DM that toolbox to say this note is is uh, written in Alzetto. Or hey, like I said in my campaign journal, the last thug standing, <laughs> shout something in a language none of you understand. 
which I did make sure none of them could understand it. <laughs> so rogues sneak in another feat at 10th level. How do you think that'll affect playing a rogue? This is another one of those things that I don't I don't know if it's just unexamined, but technically this means that if the rogue takes ability score advances as their thing, then technically the rogue is playing with more ability points than potentially any other class. I don't know that I don't like it, but it's weird. First of all, I do want to point out that I don't think you're allowed to go over 20 at all. So that is still going to be a limiting factor. But it, to me, this feels like a, well, we didn't know what else to give them. So give them an extra feat. It's almost like a, a third edition fighters. What can we do to make fighters feel special? Feats! Just feats all the way! More feats! <laughs> Rogues gain subtle strike at 13th level, which grants them advantage whenever they have an ally within five feet of the same opponent. How does this affect the rogue in a fight? I like it. I think this is a good thing to make rogues more um, more consistent later on you know, in the game, where it's like now not only are they going to really puncture you for a lot of damage if their friend is next to you, but they're way more likely to puncture you <laughs> and not miss because their friend is distracting you. Hey, watch And I think that does... Put this at 10th level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it definitely feels like a, a rogue ability. Like, you know, once somebody is distracted from you, that's a bad thing because you're a rogue. I also agree with this one. I think it makes sense that the growing skills of a rogue would allow them more advantage when coordinating their attacks with their teammates. This is the expected growth of a character in a party. Mm -hmm. So Slippery Mind gets an upgrade by incorporating proficiency with charisma saves as well as the wisdom saves. Is this a welcome change? I have no problem with rogues getting charisma saves as a proficiency. Um, if it weren't for the fact that this is coming so late in their progression, it's almost like making the rogues into what monks were in, in third edition, where what's your bad save? I don't have bad saves. <laughs> <laughs> this one's cool with me as well, though. If I recall correctly, there are at least in the current edition of the game feats you can get that offer you proficiency in saves. Yes. My battle master picked up a feat which gives her proficiency in deck saves. So she has proficiency in all physical saves. Comment her with a mind, you know, a wisdom save or an int save and well, okay. But any of the physical saves, she's probably got it. I, and I kind of wonder how that will work with this. Is this something that a rogue will have to, well, I don't want to take this feat because I'll actually get this at 13th level if we ever get to 13th level. They make this a little bit more explicit in Tasha's I think that's one of those things where they would probably it's probably going to be in the core rules that you can retrain things at different levels because that is in Tasha's. If it isn't, that is a pain because then it's like, well, someday I want this, but I want it now. Yeah, I have a feat. I don't have anything else I want to spend it on. I want this now. Yeah. <laughs> so Stroke of Luck moves down to 18th level, but instead of turning a miss into a hit, it now turns a miss into a 20. How does that change things for the rogue? This is probably, of the three classes we've looked at, this is probably the best 18th level ability. And it also feels very roguelike because you can choose at this one point in time to do this one thing the best you can do it. <laughs> I am going to get a critical hit on this guy. I am going to stab him right in his spleen and I'm going to, I'm going to call my shot. That spleen is mine. <laughs> you know, and this is especially if they don't change the sneak attack critical damage back. Right. <laughs> because that would be so sweet to basically declare that I am getting a critical hit on this character <laughs> at this moment in time, which means I get to multiply my weapon damage and my sneak attack damage. Eat that, Asmodeus. <laughs> and of course, 
me having played the grave cleric, I cannot help but think of the grave clerics saying, okay, they're vulnerable to all damage now with their ability. And then the rogue <laughs> saying, and now I get a 20. <laughs> uh, rogues lose blind sense as an ability of the standard class. Is this a big loss? I don't think so. It bordered on, like, I get what they were doing with it, but it does almost border on one of those kind of supernatural-ish feeling abilities. And I'm much better with, say, the ranger getting that because of being in nature and having animal senses or whatever than the rogue getting it. Isn't there a way to pick up blind sense through a feat? I don't think blind sense, but I think they get blind fighting is a thing where you're just getting rid of the penalties for fighting in darkness. Which would make more sense for a rogue anyway, if, if that rogue, if that player wants that for their character. Yeah. The thief is our subclass for the rogue. The first abilities it gets interact with some of the skill rules we've seen. It adds search to your cunning actions list, and it specifically mentions that you can use sleight of hand to pick a lock or disarm a trap, which means having thieves tools would grant advantage to this check. Maybe? So how does this look now as an ability? This is getting really fuzzy because in the past, I have seen some GMs say, give me a sleight of hand check to pick a lock. But now that they're incorporating that optional rule from Xanathar's into the core rules, at least according to how the first playtest document read, if you have train, you know, if you have proficiency in tools and you have a skill that applies, if you have both that apply, then you get advantage. And by specifically saying this is sleight of hand to do that, this is now basically saying that you all, unless somebody takes your thieves tools, you are always going to have advantage on doing those things and that feels like too much especially if you took expertise in one of those things because that's basically saying you are never going to have a challenge with a lock or a trap i've never quite liked how tools were set up in 5e i mean like every single rogue i've ever had has had thieves tools because you have to have thieves tools but i've never really understood like how do i use these what how does this work as a skill mechanic mm -hmm. um it felt kind of tacked on so I'm not necessarily adverse to them tying it to a skill. Maybe this is why they were advocating for a default DC of 15 in the <laughs> other half of this playtest document, because I still think that's way too high, but I can kind of see it if they're picturing all of this expertise and advantage yeah. meaning. But anyway. But it also means that let's say your fighter, you know, well, actually, I'm going to I'm going to tell a story here because this was actually what happened. In our Streets of Avalon game, Eileen's Cleric had a background that gave her proficiency in Thieves' Tools. We would have people, and I believe Bob's fighter had proficiency <laughs> in Thieves' Tools. So we had, like, everyone in the party could use Thieves' Tools, so it became this. And it was actually amusing in this, where everybody's like, let me see if I can do it this time. Nope, no, let me see. <laughs> but the, the thing with that is now, only the rogue is clearly going to have an advantage if they took Thief as their, as their subclass. Because those other people that have proficiency in thieves tools are not going to be getting all of these benefits from it. Yeah, true. I, actually, in the Eberron campaign, the person who picks locks and does that type of stuff is Cargill, the artificer, because he has the urchin background. And it makes sense to me for an artificer to be able to do that, too. Yeah. I think they really need to think about what they really want skills to do and what they really want tool proficiencies to do to make sure they're not just like completely skewing their difficulties here. I, I do suppose that it is one subclass out of however many subclasses rogues get. But at the same time, it's like if you tie this stuff to sleight of hand, rogues are going to make sure sleight of hand is one of their expertise skills. Yeah, because they're getting a lot of stuff out of it now. If that's 
if that's what the default is going to be, then that's definitely, you know, is this just the thief that gets to do this? Or are you supposed to be able to do this with sleight of hand? And that's what they're saying here, because that's it's a lot going on just in that opening <laughs> ability there. So second story work gives you a climb speed instead of not slowing your movement when you climb. And you can use dexterity instead of strength for jumping. Do we like this change? So first off, um, last episode, you may have noticed I, I actually said something that was wrong because I was saying that they were going to let you use strength or dexterity for jump. That's not true. They let you use acrobatics or athletics, but it's always a strength check when you jump. The thief oh. subclass, however, does get to use dex for jumping. And that part of this, I'm fine with. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm like, now I'm angry because like, no, if I'm using acrobatics, that's based on my dex. Now, here's the flip side of this. Um, I don't like giving them a climb speed. I, I get letting them climb faster than a normal person would climb, but giving them a climb speed, we get back into this. The thief is a skill monkey class, which means they're good at making skill checks and giving them a cl uh, climb speed means they never have to make a skill check, which means you're really good at something you never have to do. So, yeah, unless they do a lot of clarification of what a movement speed is actually supposed to be doing. And if you really do need to make checks, which would mean now DMs need to make those for monsters when they're climbing on walls. I don't like it. Supreme Sneak no longer requires that you move at half speed, but you can't use medium or heavy armor. Is the loss of those armors worth the increase of speed? From a game playing standpoint, I think yes, because most rogues probably are running around in light armor. I do know that some people, I've played with people that have basically spec'd out stealthy characters to use medium armor. This is kind of locking them out of it. But I almost wish they didn't make this change because I, I like the idea of you are so super stealthy that you get advantage, but you still have to move at half speed. I like that narrative. I don't like the idea that it just is basically saying you should wear the armor that you normally wear anyway. And now you just get advantage on <laughs> stealth. That is, again, just saying, hey, let's just hand out advantage and, and expertise everywhere. <laughs> Makes me think of Neverwinter Nights and other video games where being invisible <laughs> from sneak meant you were literally inching yes. along in the dungeon. <laughs> I, I don't know that I care about the armor part of things because I've never had a mm -hmm. rogue that would wear medium or heavy armor. But I get what you're saying. You know, and we're talking about rogues. This is all about my needs, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> use magic device doesn't just give you the ability to use magic items you don't qualify for any longer. Now it specifically lets you use spell scrolls for cantrips and first level spells, lets you attune an extra magic item, and you can roll a d6 to see if you can expend a charge when using a magic item with charges. How do we like this change? I actually like this a lot better than a 2014 version. The 2014 version, I think, was too overly broad. It just felt like, yeah, you can use whatever magic item you find. This is kind of weird because it's not referencing anything in classical literature, but it is feeling a lot more like the old version of The Thief, like from earlier editions, where, yes, you can use a scroll if you find it. You can, you know, you can tinker around with this thing and see if maybe you can get it to work without using charges. I like it. I actually I'm, I'm a fan of this change for use magic device. This is another one of those I never really got around to playing around with because I've never actually played the thief subclass. But I do like that bonus attunement. That's really that's really sexy. I believe it was our friends, uh, Brandis and Sam, that had mentioned, you know, what you got to do with the other version of this was be a dick and use a, a holy avenger that the paladin could have used. <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's mine. <laughs> Shiny fire sword is mine. But but paladin. <laughs>
Instead of gaining an extra turn on the first round of combat, Thief's Reflexes now gives you an extra bonus action each turn, up to your proficiency bonus in turns. How is this trade-off? I think it's still messy. (laughs) I think it was great for someone getting that extra turn, but it was a lot. Now that you actually change two up in fighting to not using a bonus action, I don't know that you have enough extra things you want to do with your bonus action because you have your bonus action to spend every turn. (laughs) So, like, the main thing I can picture is like, oh, now I can double dash or now I can, you know, withdraw and dash. It's just, I don't know. It it seems kind of fiddly for this high level application of the thief. And again, I almost wish this was more just like what the fighter gets with their second wind. Just give him an extra attack. Yeah. It's, it's fine. Just give him an extra attack. Or an extra action. That's fine. Take an action. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> what classes benefited the most and the least from these changes? Um, I think the rogues change the least. I think there is a potential for like those classes or those uh, parties and groups that really got into the, uh, the the meta of knowing exactly how to trigger those off turn sneak attacks for that to really affect the rogue. But in general, I think the rogue feels the most like it's the same rogue with a few little things tweaked. I think the bard really loses out in this. I, I don't think this is a net gain for bards at all, because I think even when they're trying to make it more flexible, they're giving it less tools to be flexible with. Yeah, it's like, I really like some of the changes they made. I like the changes they made to the way Bardic Inspiration works. But the fact that they limited how many times they get to Mm -hmm. do it so dramatically. Yeah. is like, oh, this is this does not compute. They feel really limited for something that feels like they're building it as a primary spellcaster. And all of the all of the cool stuff the Bard gets to do is like way up there in level. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Ranger is the biggest winner because I think it comes out better than a lot better than it did in the 2014 version <laughs> mechanic. Well, I'm not going to get into that yet because we have a whole other thing to talk about with that. But yeah, I think I think R- Rangers benefit the most. Rogues are the least changed. Bards get kicked right in the shin. I, I pretty much <laughs> agree with all of that. I think the the Ranger definitely benefited the most. They were pretty lackluster in the original player's handbook. Most of the folks I know who were playing Rangers in the early days of 5e were using that very early Unearthed Arcana document that came out to fix them, Mm -hmm. um, which I think was replaced by fixes in Tasha's. Yeah. Um, But still, it's like the fact that they had to fix (laughs) a core class from the player's handbook was says a lot about how how much of a struggle it was for Rangers in the early days. Which classes feel right regardless of potential changes in power? Um, I think rogues are fine. They still rogues still feel like what they felt like in 2014 to me. Bards feel a little bit more fiddly than they should. Like you have to learn how this bard works to make it do what you want it to do. And I think it worked a little bit better out of the box, even if you didn't know what you were doing in the 2014 version. <laughs> I think the Ranger is better off than the 2014 one, but I wish there were more abilities that didn't rely on them using spells that yeah. made them feel a little bit more naturey. Um, right now, they are better than what they were, but they also feel less naturey other than they get primal spells. It's like all of the nature design went into, but they also get primal spells. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty much in agreement about that. In you know, in the grand scheme of things, I have quibbles, but I'm not drastically unhappy mm-hmm. with all of this. I could rant for hours on the bardic inspiration times per day thing. <laughs> That's just mean. 
I do agree that rangers need a little more of that wilderness wild flavor Mm -hmm. to them outside of the spells. I don't like that two of their major abilities rely on spell slots. Mm -hmm. Like, give them them Hunter's Mark differently. Like, I could handle Hunter's Mark being based on proficiency bonus. Especially since you can transfer it in a combat. Right. Once you drop this thing, you can transfer it to something else. Right. You can basically daisy chain it until the combat is over. Yeah. So basically that gives you two combats per day at first level, mm-hmm. which you can use it. Okay, that's that's fine. But don't don't tie it to the spell slots. Yeah. Um, and rogues, rogues will always <laughs> be my darlings. Um, you know, and I wish they wouldn't take away the quote unquote loophole. That's not a loophole for them getting <laughs> sneak attack on other people's turns. But I'm mostly okay with everything else. I think in general, my thoughts are a lot of the cooler abilities are either too high up in the level chain or in addition, the high level things they get are not cool enough. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I think we're pretty close on our thoughts here. Does that mean we made it all the way through that document? We did. And and we only we only have an episode that's 150 percent larger than most of our episodes. Chris is going to yell at us. <laughs> All right. So now seems like a good time to move into our downtime research. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look at something related to D&D that we want to pass along to our listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. The Dungeon Dudes are a pair of YouTubers doing D&D related content on the regular. I like most of their stuff, but I was particularly happy to see an episode they did recently on Dungeon Master Burnout. Now, it doesn't matter which game system you're actually playing. This is something most GMs end up dealing with at some point. So it was cool to see a video offering some good advice on how to combat this. My secret is I've helped create a group that has multiple (laughs) GMs, so we all take turns. It's kept my group running for about 15 years now. (laughs) We'll have a link to this episode in the show notes. For mine, I am going to recommend Rise of the Mimic Moon from uh, Kobold Press. It is a short supplement, and it outlines a campaign where a new moon appears in the sky above that turns out to be a mimic. (laughs) And (laughs) there are several new monsters, and there is just, it's not like a full-blown adventure, but it kind of tells you what this campaign, what you would have as uh, benchmarks for each level, each tier of play, until you resolve the storyline. This was just weird enough to get my attention, and I loved it. So we'll have a link for that, too, so you can go to the Kobo Press store and pick up the PDF of Rise of the Mimic Moon. (laughs) (laughs) We have used up all of our resources, and boy, howdy, have we. (laughs) So I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure.